On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Jacob Templar, who is a physical therapist and orthopedic clinical specialist. The main topic of this episode was scans, and then we dove a little bit in the end on some low back and disc issues. But so starting off, the first thing we talked about, just the general good and bad of, of scans. Uh, then we went into kind of what to take out of them for the athlete as well as the practitioner. We talked about, quote unquote, what, what do bad findings really mean on a scan? Um, Dr. Templar talked about kind of when he decides to send people for scans and some things he looks at before he just straight up sends them to get uh, some sort of medical scan. Uh, we then went into some low back, um, some different things with a low back, and we looked at, he talked about this, the spine in general, and we talked about discs, because that's always something that's common that comes up with scans, and he kind of went, went over the anatomy and dispelled some myths, myths around that. We then talked about, in general, can a joint be, quote-unquote, out of alignment? And then we talked about what what's getting your spine, your back cracked, actually is doing and his kind of take on that. So, again, it's just really, really comprehensive, kind of go around on some topics, but, again, having that overarching theme of scans. So, here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences this podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, and today I have on Dr. Templar, who is a doctor of physical therapy and orthopedic clinical specialist, and also has a CERT MDT. So today I had him on. Appreciate you being on. Um, I had him on just to really talk about, uh, I guess, scans initially, and then kind of going into some evidence-based stuff with um, physical therapy and some common myths, and kind of to try and, I guess, dispel those. So again, thanks for being on. First off, if you just want to give yourself a little bit of an, an overview on kind of your background, how you got into uh, physical therapy, um, kind of what you do now, and so on. Yeah, so I started in physical therapy with, uh, I went to school at Utica College. Um, I did a four, three te- year technically like undergrad in health studies, which the it's kind of a hybrid program where they introduce us to um, different aspects of like psychology, sociology basic sciences um, and prep you for a a grad program in physical therapy then um, as part of that my like last my senior year of undergrad was technically my first year graduate school uh, then did three years there um, and our last year pretty much is just clinicals Um, so I got introduced to hospital care didn't really like it a lot it's only time in my like college career where I was like do I really have to pass um I just did not like it even though it taught me a lot of things uh then my last clinical was an ortho outpatient and I actually had a really bad experience at my first one in ortho outpatient I maybe not like ortho uh, but then I had much better experience and that kind of set me up even for my first job um which I started in Syracuse New York, um, and I worked at a big orthopedic practice where the main emphasis is like surgery, um, where we were attached to like surgeons, and I did work on some uh, post-op protocols there for spine surgery uh, with a couple other physical therapists there, Um, and then since then I've moved to Rochester, New York, and I work at a clinic that's just like one-on-one, our focus is like 
general health, uh, getting people to hopefully avoid surgery. Um, and I even treat vertigo here. Um, and then since moving out here, I got involved with the strength guys doing uh, consulting with, you know, elite power lifters, like most notably, and I'll say this because publicly Taylor said it, like I worked with Taylor Atwood during one of his preps for the last U.S. Nationals, and he's currently the overall reigning world champion right now. Uh, I've worked with a couple of our other medalists and people that have gone to different various nationals, things like that, but I won't disclose like who and what nations or anything, um, as well as... Um, so I do that work with through injury management with with them and to try and reduce risk of injuries. Um, other than that, I'm the local uh, Finger Lakes District for American Physical Therapy Association secretary, um, and that's kind of I think kind of everything. Okay, yeah. So just kind of the good general review of and progression of uh, where you've gone. I guess I just one quick more question on it is mm-hmm. what. Um, kind of got you super interested in um kind of like diving into all the evidence and trying to get you know the the most up-to-date um info i guess other than just being i guess trying to be a good physical therapist yeah um it was kind of like started off with my interest in fitness and then gravitating away from like bro fitness and being in uh you know, a science-related degree to begin with, where I was taking, like, chemistry and physics and anatomy and all these other things. So I'm like, okay, well, that's, like, the science behind all of these things and, like, what works, what doesn't. Um, and I started learning through that, like, getting introduced to groups like 3DMJ and people like Lane Norton and Ben Escrow and actually some people that are, like, my colleagues now in Strength Eyes. Um, and then from there, it just evolved into naturally towards physical therapy and and being curious about these certain things like why do we do this and then talking about it in school um you know well why do we do this why don't we do this what's the evidence for x y or z and then just having natural curiosity to look into topics if i'm if i'm like okay i want to know about this and then getting into rabbit holes sometimes reading like close to 100 journals and over a weekend or on a friday night Perfect. Well, I guess let's just jump right in then. Let's just go straight into it. So first, we'll start off with scans is one of our main topics. And I'll just yeah. go over, um, let's, let's just say the good and the bad, in your opinion. What's kind of the good of them, the bad of them, and then we can kind of go in from there. I mean, I think the good of them is you can definitely help somebody. Like, if they do need, need to have surgery, like, actually fit qualifications, that surgery is going to improve their quality of life you're going to know more like okay where are we doing the surgery potentially the surgeon will determine where what surgery maybe is most appropriate for what's going on um they're obviously great for trauma cases if you have a fracture if you have cancer if you have other like kind of really serious things going on they're for sure should pick that up and preventatively like you know you you hopefully won't you know, need to get past, you know, where somebody doesn't notice that and you can get the treatment you need uh, most appropriately. I'd say the bad thing is, especially in the U.S., is that we see is, is one, they're overutilized. Like, far too often people are sent for x-rays, MRIs, CTs, um, before they even need to have them done. And 
the other big re- thing with that is that it's so culturally ingrained where people like they want to scan because they want to know what's going on and and that leads into some issues with like as a culture and as a lay person most people don't understand that just because something shows up on a scan doesn't mean like that doesn't mean that it's what is necessarily causing your symptoms or is you know relatable to you like clinically or how you're going to turn out like long term yeah and i think we can kind of go into that in a second but i think another good Mm -hmm. point is a lot of times too maybe would you say that you would you know whether whether it's um some two injuries that are relatively similar you'd probably treat them treat them similar as well so knowing the exact issue of it might not be always that important um and then is that something as well you'd say yeah, I mean, typically you, f- you can find that there's a lot of overlap between different different body regions even, like a hip to a low back to a um, some of the strengthening exercises I use for like lower extremity are the same ones I might use for the back or some of them that I might use for upper extremity would be the same as the neck. It, there's a lot of overlay, um, especially when you're trying to relate it to like actual activity somebody might do during their daily life and like if somebody has shoulder pain, sometimes it doesn't make a difference if it's like their rotator cuff versus impingement versus um, like a labrum issue, different things like that. You're still like have some of the same general goals that you're trying to work towards. Yeah. So I guess kind of going back to what we were saying beforehand. So, yeah. So if they do have all that, you know, all these quote unquote bad things, bad sayings on a scan, you know, they come back with this massive list of things that's wrong with this this joint or whatever is, you know, scan, um, how do you communicate or what would you say to the patient when they're like freaking out of, you know, there, there, there's so many things wrong, this is my pain and so on. And how would you kind of go about approaching that? Yeah. I mean, so typically I, you, I will use a lot of anecdote, even if it's technically not anecdote to like show people, because that's the way like our human brain works. Like we want to hear anecdote. We prefer to hear stories Um, And that connects and resonates much better with patients than saying, like, oh, I read in this study. Like, they don't care about a study. They want to know, like, some actual person maybe had benefit before. So I'll go, okay, well, I've, like, seen somebody that we did X, Y, and Z. Um, You know, um, I had somebody come in today, actually, that has some drop foot, um, even. And it's, like, typical. Like, I've treated people in the past, even, and they have improved with drop foot and I was like you know this is a percentage of chance like I know you've had an MRI and it has like you've had a disc bulge at probably these levels because of his physical exam and even like connecting their physical exam to like your findings and saying like that kind of reassures them like I kind of know what I'm talking about and maybe doing they're like oh yeah I've heard those terms before I'm like yeah it seems like you have an issue here maybe potentially and just reassuring them like tissue healing times like so he's like, oh, yeah, I've had a disc bulge. And I'm like, well, the, you know, the good thing about disc bulges is that they heal over time. And usually, like, if you had an MRI again, you know, after six weeks or, you know, these time periods, it's like X amount of percentage is going to be reabsorbed or may potentially look kind of similar. But usually it's healed if we were to do, like, more advanced testing um, and then tell them about, like, you know, oh, well, just because this is there doesn't mean and it can heal doesn't mean that sometimes tissues don't remain sensitive and we just kind of have to teach your body again okay let's get back into a normal rhythm yeah definitely i think so kind of going back into that too uh with uh so let's say someone comes to you initially 
mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of debating on that, you know, should I go in and get a scan on something or, or not? And, and it's not anything traumatic. It's just kind of an ongoing pain you're trying to identify. And I know it's, it's mm-hmm. going to be varied. Um, so, a lot, again, a lot of people will, as we kind of talked about initially, want to just go straight in, know what it is, this is the issue, and then treat it from there. As you yeah. mentioned before, it's not always the cause of it. Do you have yeah. a general rule of, hey, look, you know, maybe let's try just treating it similar because it might be these two. But, again, as we talked about, you might treat it similar. And then out of, after X amount of weeks, if it doesn't improve, then you send them for a scan. Do you have some sort of general approach you do it like that? Yeah, uh, typically, like, I use some timelines, like, for example, like, six weeks is a big one with, like, lower back, um, especially if somebody has weakness, if you notice that it's, like, progressively getting worse, like, in the U.S., a typical time frame is, like, six weeks, even there's one in, like, a Chad Cook paper I've read, they talk about, like, red flag screening, um, and the timeline for red flags is, unless you have, like, a significant number of these, like, red flags show up on, like, a clustering of, uh, you know, like, intake or things like that like um specifically for cancer there's like five main ones that you would like ask somebody about like do you have a history of cancer like if you're over 55 do you have uh unremitting night pain uh different other symptoms um you know what's that like is it getting worse and do we see that you're not getting any better with therapy um and i typically use for my ocs training um as much as some of the clusters of tests uh, maybe aren't as valid as we used to think, it's somewhat reassuring if you tell a patient, well, you know, I did X, Y, and Z tests, and these are clusters that tell us about, like, if you would have a rotator cuff tear, how does that look like clinically? Um, and, you know, it looks like, you know, from everything I can see, you structurally, your shoulder's fine, you may have an incidental tear there, but that's not going to affect the way that we would treat you. And I, you know, I even throw in this like appeal to you know anecdote where i'm like oh i've seen people in the past and this has worked even though like typically if we're having a discussion with someone academically we you don't want to say like oh i've seen it work like that's the last thing that you should do and then the way you should approach things yeah definitely um with uh i guess do you have how do you i guess approach that to that initial conversation of someone trying to you know determine uh, you know, should I should I get go in and get a scan, or um, should I just wait it out? And I get again, like so, it's going to be you know different if it's not traumatic or something like that. You know, just kind of an ongoing issue you're trying to figure it out. Or I guess even if it is like a general muscle strain or something like that, what's your kind of? Do you have any general guidelines upon that? Yeah. Um, so it depends on the different body region too. Like there's uh, prediction rules that I'll use. Like you know, like the Canadian. There's a uh, not Canadian. It's the Ottawa ankle rules. So you have the um, it's Ottawa ankle rules. There's even Ottawa and Pittsburgh knee rules. Um, there's not any that I could find for the lumbar spine. Um, you have the C spine rules, which you have the Canadian ones, and there's the Nexus criteria uh, that seem to be pretty good. Um, as well as for the elbow, there's certain signs like say if they have like a bony block to elbow extension and can't like press up out of a chair um that's another sign potentially that they should get an x-ray um you can do some tests like tuning fork testing or strength testing and fulcrum tests um and there's a couple even like um like pelvic percussion tests and things like that where you use a stethoscope and typically i have them put the head of the stethoscope on their like pubic bone 
and then you like use a uh, tuning fork and put it on their like on their femur and if you hear different resonance that's pretty uh, specific like the likelihood ratio which would be like likelihood ratios that are negative or po like negative ones you want them to be as close to zero as possible and positive ones like if it's one that's like a 50 50 if it's a five that's like a moderate five to ten and ten and above is like pretty strong and i think one of them if it's for pelvic fracture i think like the likelihood ratio is like it's like 300 or something like that hmm. okay so, so yeah just sorry go ahead yeah so like i use some of those things and then reassure people like okay these are tests that have been compared to like getting a scan done and this is the likelihood that you would potentially need one now based on these different criteria. So, you know, it doesn't look like you need one. You know, these are, I even sometimes sound like these are the same things that they would use if you went to the ER to figure out if you should have an x-ray or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. just kind of figuring out, you know, those the tests that have been studied to determine if um, they're similar enough to scans to, to rule out things. Uh, I yeah. guess, what about, um, so for an athlete, higher level athlete, yeah. um, maybe not professional, so they don't have the, the luxury of just getting, you know, everything paid for. Um, what are your, what are your kind of guidelines on that? Um, do you push more for it to go to the scan, even with the, the, you try those other tests or is it, um, you, you still are confident in, in the tests that you've kind of talked about? Yeah. I'm, I kind of even more confident with that. Like I even want to give them a little bit more time to unless like they can't like these tests you know unless those are significantly positive or things like that because really a lot of the elite athletes that i work with it's like sometimes you could just do almost anything with them and they'll get better um because some of them are so genetically like gifted as it is that they're much more likely that if you just have them do anything they'll feel better or change their load management um versus it sometimes can be harder to persuade them that, but if they have a good relationship with their coach and I'm working with them, then, you know, relaying that information to their coach or, um, say specifically like with a common person, a lot of times it's just hard to get them to convince like that you don't need to just see what's going on there because it could potentially be worse. So it's like sometimes getting in a conversation with, okay, like, why do you want that scan? what's the scan going to do for you? Like, is it going to change anything that you do? Or is it just that you want reassurance that something really serious isn't going on? Like sometimes you can get into it. Like I've gotten into conversations with people and like ask them, well, like, what's that going to change for you? Or like, why do you want it? And it's like their family has like a history of this, like specific type of cancer or like something like that. And then I'm like, okay, well, so that's probably more of a reason why maybe we should get it versus, you know, these are some of the things that may show up in your joint but let's make sure you know you don't have this specific type of cancer that seems to be pretty prevalent in your family yeah and so as so what you're kind of saying there too is that um you don't want to like freak them out even more because if they're functioning at this and like i said the scans can come back with all sorts of things that that may not be technically feeling so like yeah. uh, what about um even just like general you know arthritis type stuff in like a mm -hmm athlete that has been going on forever you maybe talk a little bit about that and how you know that doesn't always necessarily you know mean you have pain or anything yeah i mean the big thing with that is like um i know i, I listened to a podcast that Jared hall did with uh, modern pain care 
and they were talking about it, and he's like even getting, and I was like, oh, why didn't I think of this before? But even if you get into the naming of arthritis, like technically people don't have arthritis all the time because itis is inflammation. So technically you only have arthritis when you have like what we'd call like the flare-ups when there's true inflammation there. Because um, otherwise you have arthrosis, which is just the change of the joint uh, when we get into like the actual Latin of it. Um, so, and, and typically actually the longer somebody has something, the less likely the tissue is at fault, the way that our body reacts as far as pain physiology goes. Uh, most of the research suggests that like one in four to one in five people in developed countries depends like the American number is one in four. A lot of stuff out of Europe and Australia and stuff is like one in five from what I've seen. We'll, dev we'll have persisting symptoms even beyond the, the time frames of tissue healing. So that's where I'm like, hey, like this is the what we know of this. So the longer you've had this issue, the less likely it is because of these types of drivers of, of symptoms potentially. And it's telling us like we have to work on these specific things. And even for example, I'll use examples where um, a couple, like when I was doing a, a review for meniscus, um, you know, they find a major league soccer players or not. Ours is, we so in the US obviously we call it soccer versus like um, football. Um, so in the European league for football, they found that a lot of times when they would take x-rays of people that had knee pain, um, that were starters, um, I think it was like 90 something percent of them had some kind of change. And even people that didn't have pain, they still had like significant changes. And then when they compared it to the side that they've never had symptoms on about like 93% of the time, they also had those changes on that side. So it's like, and there's been a couple with baseball where they've studied pitchers and for, they followed these pitchers for five years and all of them had a, uh, some type of tear in their rotator cuff and some type of tear in their labrum. None of them ever ended up on the injury list and none of them ever missed any practices because of of these changes um, and those were chronic changes um, as well as um, there was a study done at one of the, the Olympic Games that were in Brazil um, and about I think it was about 88 or 90 percent of people that were that participated in the games that they took x-rays of their um, their back suggested that they had arthritis uh, but these are like world-class competitors so typically, too, like the highest performers are the ones with the most changes, and yeah. the least likely to ever have a problem because of it. Yeah. So, so I guess in general, what you're saying is the body's like it's you know it's strong, it's adaptable, and people shouldn't be, you know, freaked out when something comes back and says all this, a, a massive um, list of issues on on a scan. Yeah, and and in fact, too, like um, typically if we look at a Western civilization and the way that we move ourselves, this is my shameless plug for like exercise, uh, general exercise guidelines, is that um, the majority of times that like where joints don't actually wear out, what's happening is that we're not moving our bodies enough to build resiliency and robustness and like a response from your nervous system that like it views activities being beneficial and this is not a wear and tear issue. This is just a, we haven't done enough to like kind of maintain 
and build this resiliency inside the joints and in your body versus people that are like professional athletes um, and like maybe people that are like high-end like physical laborers are the ones that actually are experiencing like a wear and tear issue yeah because they are you know maybe using it slightly more excessively but still they're giving that i guess some stimulus to adapt so that's why they're yeah. maybe not being as much pain where if someone doesn't do anything then they're not giving the stimulus to adapt yeah and and you see it in athletes all the time like they forego long-term joint health for short-term like performance like it's not uncommon that if somebody develops a knee issue in like a you know national football league over here like a running back or a wide receiver that they'll go get a partial meniscectomy so they can play in six weeks even though long term we know that's like not beneficial for loading in the joint yeah i mean it's definitely money money's definitely probably a play there too but yeah yeah yep. yeah i guess uh kind of going next into we can we can dive into kind of talking building off the fact that the, you know the body is pretty a resilient thing um mm. that responds to adaptation and change um maybe going into like low back because i know this is like a, a big one with scans as well i mean arthritis was mm. one that we kind of went over um but maybe just go into like the anatomy of the spine because a lot of times too people will, will be so afraid of um you know like quote unquote slipping discs or you know something moving around or you know all that and maybe just kind of talk about you know the spine as anatomy in general and kind of go from there yeah i mean like i take so i mean most lay people don't know that the way that we number and, and name like um, vertebrae is based on like the segment level. Like in your cervical spine, you have like the seven, and so it's C1 through seven. Most people don't know that there's no disc at like in, in majority of people, like starting at above like C3, like C1 and two don't have this. Like I had somebody the other day tell me they had a herniated disc at like C2. I was like, huh, really? That's interesting because that's unique where um, it's not uncommon that I have people tell me that they have an extra vertebrae because they, on the scan, it talked about S1. So, like, things like that. So, obviously, there's, like, that. You have uh, segmental changes because at the cervical spine you get more rotation. You have to worry about the vertebral artery up there. Um, with people, there's another, some other tests that I'll do for people, and that's specifically to why I don't do any cervical manipulations, is um, there's definitely been a high trend that I've seen lately for vertebral artery dissection, and I've actually, I've had, I want to say two patients recently, that one has had their daughter that had a vertebral artery dissection uh, specifically following, like, going to the chiropractor. One of my coworkers had a patient that developed Wallenberg sy syndrome and had a stroke after a chiropractic manipulation. Now, PTs do manipulations, too. Like, it's popular in, in Australia and, and everywhere. Like, Maitland's obviously very popular. Um, Mulligan, like, different things like that. So it's not just chiropractors. Um, it's just they're the ones who typically do the most amount of ma ma manipulation. Um, then in your thoracic spine, things get a little different because you have rib attachments. So you're more limited in your flexion and extension than rotation, typically. Um, as you get lower, like if somebody does like segmental uh, palpation, I just do like a rough estimate of that just to kind of see maybe, oh, this is maybe where somebody feels like they're more symptomatic, even though it's not necessarily how it works. Um, 
you should expect that as you go lower in any segments, it's going to get a little bit stiffer in, as far as movement. And then once we get to the lumbar spine, like actually most people don't know that the um, spinal cord stops at L1, um, and then it's free-floating nerve roots. That's why we have cauda equina, because the it's talking about the free-floating nerve endings there. Um, there's more, you know, different types of movement in the lumbar spine. There's a lot less rotation that's able to occur there. Um, and we have five of them, and the sacrum is fused, um, even though <clears throat> there's segments there, and then you have their coccyx um, below that. But a lot of times we don't have to worry about those things, and um, I almost never worry about the SI joint because I've never had a patient that's actually been positive on the cluster. Yeah. Um, so I guess when someone comes into you and says, you know, they're or they're worried they slip they slip mm -hmm. their disc or they're worried that it's yeah. moved out of alignment. Um, I don't know. Do you know if any if you know any studies in the top of your head or just know the general of them? But like how, you know, strong the spine is of resisting. You know the quote unquote, they can't slip or can't, you know, do all that and maybe explain to them, how do you kind of go about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I go through the asymptomatic populations and the fact that like, there's such a huge number of people that technically have like disc herniations or bulges, um, which is technically not a proper way to use that terminology. Cause the way that I was taught is like, there's degrees of that and a, and a herniation would be what I would use further down the line versus like a bulge would be like maybe a grade two like um, um, progression of like nuclear material. Not that it like matters a ton. Um, Cause somebody could have a grade two um, migration and they could have the same symptoms as somebody is with a three or four migration. Um, typically I talk about the robustness of that because it's such a strong like lattice work there around the disc that I mean, it's it's a weird terminology as far as how we've reduced it to that, because it's a lattice structure that technically can never truly like slip out of place, um, and even when it does like bulge, it's like still contained within that structure and can reabsorb again, um, and your body's actually very good at reabsorbing it, and it's anywhere between like it's like sixty to I think it it's like sixty six percent of people have no symptoms and have some kind of change and it, it rises through your age group so like I don't know like are you between 20 and 30 for example yeah yeah so I'm like almost 28 so if we had you know eight of our friends here like there would be at least three of us that have uh, a disc bulge technically and probably don't even have any back pain yeah, so I guess just kind of relating it back even to the scans and, and similar to what you said before is, um, I guess two points out of this. One is the fact that even if you do have a disc bulge or whatever the terminology you want to call that would be, if you had, you know, one of your friends is worse than the, than the other one, even the, the friend that's not as bad could have more pain because mm -hmm. it's just dependent on the person and the, and the individuality of them. But then also yeah. the fact that a good point you said is, is when a patient or an athlete comes into you and is all freaked out because of the fact that you have a disc bulge and they can't, you know, they're not going to do, not going to be able to do anything anymore. You just stated the fact that they can reabsorb and heal themselves in a decent amount of people, correct? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, technically too, in this area, like, um, 
the, the physical factors are less of a driver of like telling you about somebody's pain potential than like psychological factors. Like if you compare apples to apples, the number of people in the general population that have a disc herniation compared to the number of people in the population that have clinical depression, the people with clinical depression are four times more likely to have back pain than the people with a disc bulge. So yeah, so it's more of the mental stress and stuff on it than the physiological issue of having that. Yeah, it's like the the depression sets your nerve nerves up to to potentially. I I always tell my patients like I either use a term like your nerves pissed off or it's ticked off. It's like mm-hmm. it's probably like you know I go through and test them for radiculopathy. I'm like, well, you don't have radiculopathy, so you don't have a pinched nerve, but the nerve is definitely ticked off right now. So what we know is that this is what nerves like, which is you need to move around more. You need to do stuff that encourages blood flow to be increased there. You need to um, and do stuff that could potentially create more space for it to move around more. So that involves various different treatments, graded exposure, like, hey, these are all good things for you to do and we know will help you you know, feel better. Um, and a lot of times I don't discuss like the mechanical mechanisms. I get much more into like, here's what we know that movement does as far as like increasing blood flow. Like your nerves take, nerves and brain take up like 25% of the amount of blood that you have in your body. So let's improve that circulation. Not that it's like necrotic or anything. Um, you know, movement creates a lot of endorphins in your body, uh, which we know, you know, maybe your body's not using them as well or responding to your own like natural produced endorphins. And the fact that, you know, uh, some aerobic activity, um, like aerobic programs dose to like 50% of some of the VO2 max in people with chronic back pain and with uh, fibromyalgia seem to be as effective or more effective than some medications. Um, and that to me, that means like telling somebody about like, are you familiar with the talk test? No. So the talk test is, um, you can tell if somebody's at a moderate level of activity if they um oh, okay yeah 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 if you get out of breath but you could still talk have a conversation that's moderate but if you get out of breath and can't then that's vigorous so i want them to be at least at the moderate level um and then start at like i think most of the research is like shows like they start them at like 10 minutes and work up to like half an hour at least like four times a week and that seems to be pretty effective to help with like pain management in the beginning because of endogenous opiates and even like they've done some tests where um, in the 80s they did a um, blood blood test where they had runners run like six miles. And what happened is that once they test them after the run, the amount of endogenous opiates that your body produced was about 10 milligrams, uh, the ten, equivalent of 10 milligrams of morphine. And for reference like the amount of that of your own body's endorphins is about 50 times less because it's 50 times more potent than a man-made opiate mm. so so again just kind of back to the point of what you're saying before with that um you know pain isn't necessarily the uh, actual structural mechanical issue there's a lot more playing into it than that so not being yeah. too upset with with scans i yep. guess what about um so someone goes into some, a practitioner um, and they, and you know, 
their quote unquote hips are off or this yeah. is tight. That's, that's my favorite. The, <laughs> if, if your hips are off, your hip flexors are tight, this is not, and all these different mind, like issues. And that's all causing, you know, some, you know, back pain, knee pain, et cetera. What, um, what's your opinion and stance on that? Is, is it all structural and, um, like kinematical movement and all that, or is there, how do you kind of approach that? I guess. Uh, so, I initially like learned a lot of things in that approach, but now I almost like don't pay any attention to that. I just kind of, I'll ask patients, okay, like, how's that feel to you? And if it like, even if it looks different after I have people do stuff, I don't say anything. I go, well, how's that feel? Like, do they notice that it's different? Um, I kind of pay attention to it and just take a note of it just to see if it changes. Um, but a lot of times it's like, from what I've been able to see, a lot of that's related to like neurophysiological effects where um, you can be thrown off specifically just because you're in pain Um, and depending on how long it's been there there's a better chance that somebody's like it's not that they're weak a lot of times you may be deconditioned in your so meaning your capacity for movement and things like that is just less before your so to speak alarm goes off and and typically that's from almost like a psychological standpoint or like your your body is naturally not gating it as much as it should be um because uh it seems to be that unless you have chronic pain the physical um like the amount of physical stimulus that it takes to produce pain in somebody or for you them to tell you doesn't really vary a whole lot unless you train like specifically Um, Like, I think Adam Meekins posted something about, like, endurance athletes have, like, more of a tolerance for that stimulus. Like, they can essentially, like, runners and stuff just get through more suck. Like, they just get used to, like, things suck, they hurt, uh, but that's part of your sport versus, like, people that are weightlifters have a higher, like, threshold for that. So, like, because they're used to lifting very heavy weights, they get used to, like, a lot of discomfort. Um, but not for long periods of time. Um, so it's something we could potentially train, and it's something that in people that have chronic pain starts to reduce. Um, like even people that have TM, like chronic uh, TMJ, when they do pressure point thresholds on their um, their anterior tip on your shin, they have reduced uh, pressure point thresholds than nor- like uh, the average person. So a lot of this is like changes in the nervous system saying like, okay, like something's going on here. I want you to move differently because I think it's safer for you to move this way than it would be to move this other way. People with back pain move more rigidly and that's, you know, guarding and stuff because its body goes, okay, it's not as safe. I don't think it's as safe for you to do this way than it is to do it this way. Yeah. Okay. And so what would you say? So, um, it's more of you know just a general full body response and not necessarily known you can't really relate in your opinion that you can't really relate you know your hips are off because of due to this 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 and this fix that you're all good to go no issues and so on so what what about um so someone is you know does have some sort of issues a low back or something along the spine you know yeah. the spines again quote unquote out of alignment and they need to get it you know cracked or put back into alignment can you explain like what that actually, you know, what actually is, you know, the crack or the cavitation, what's that, what, what that is doing. And then it's, is, is it really out of alignment or not? 
Yeah, I mean, typically, so there, there's now a couple different theories about the cavitation. We don't know which one is actually true. Um, I've seen a couple things on it. The latest that I'm most familiar with is, like, some people discuss, like, air bubbles moving out of, like, a joint or... Uh, potentially you're hearing like movement of a fat pad that that um, cushions the joint is another one um, there's some thought that maybe if the tendon is like kind of sliding or snapping over a structure when you when you move them that's what you're hearing um, there's a different things like that but we don't know which one is potentially the true like true um, and typically too like it's not actually out like it's not out of alignment because if it's if it were to actually be out of alignment then you should probably go to the emergency room because it means something's broken um a lot of what's happening is like a protective response by your body and makes you feel like it's out of alignment especially in areas like your lower back um you know it's it's like the example that i'll use for patients is like if you ever have like um, I don't know if like popcorn's super popular in Australia. Uh, but that's, it's, sadly, it's not. Love popcorn though, so uh, it's yeah, it's big. <laughs> so it's like probably low key underrated outside of America. Um, yeah. But if you're eating something like that or fruit or like the the biggest one would be like meat, I guess is like a good one that like everybody kind of eats steak everywhere. But if you get that stuff's like stuck in your teeth. Like, it always feels like it's the biggest piece of, like, something that's ever been stuck in between your teeth. And then you get it out, and you're like, oh, this is, like, tiny. So it's usually, like, just small changes, but it feels like, oh, my God, like, things are huge. And the way we know your brain, like, um, you know, kind of sees these things. Like, your awareness of what happens in your spine, for example, is le way less precise than it would be, like, at your hand. Um so like two point discrimination for like the spine is like way far apart compared to other areas of your body. So it just feels like it's so much bigger of a change than actually is happening. So I even tell people that like, look, like this is like, I'll even sometimes break out like the measurement and be like, okay, this is how far apart you can tell. Like if something's two points or one point in your back and like, this is like in your hand, like how far it is. So like, you know, if something's, happen there it feels like it's a huge difference because you are less precise and, and can't really tell what's happening like if i gave you a paper cut on your finger you can and you can look at it too you could go oh i just got a paper cut i'm gonna go on but if you get that in your back you feel like oh my god something's really serious going on here you know normal bleeding that happens with healing and inflammation that happens with healing like really pisses off our nerve roots for some reason um mm -hmm. So it just feels like it's a huge issue. So it's just like telling them about these things and sometimes in a light, like I, I swear and say stuff like that from patients, depending on who it is. Um, cause it kind of relaxes them and they like ease up and they're like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So I guess like kind of building off that, what, what, what does it, um, so, so if they, if a patient does come and think that, or an athlete thinks that, you know, all these things are the cause of their pain and they get adjusted or so on um does that actually fixing anything what's that doing why do they feel better right afterwards and then in general what are your normal recommendations and, um if that's not the fix yeah um often it's not the fix it can be an entry point to get somebody maybe if they're in a lot of pain 
to be able to do more active um, activities. And uh, my like personal friends that are there are chiropractors and ones that I work with locally to me um, definitely aren't the type that just manipulate people. Like often they'll do that, but then also give them uh, other exercises to do and encourage activity. Um, my best understanding of what happens now, um, and there's like different theories, same thing with this, and there's going to be different camps, but my current understanding is that um, like a manipulation creates a response from your um, your body to produce more endogenous opiates and have like more of a systemic effect. Definitely has local effects by moving the joint a bit, um, but it stimulates you know like your spinal cord and other areas to produce more opiates and and that typically lingers uh, I think like forty five minutes afterwards, and then. Um, depending on what's happened to in somebody's like the centers of your brain um it can potentially reduce things like smudging and things like that because you're giving someone more feedback to the joint and there were a couple studies by Lowe, adrian Lowe, um what the heck's his name louis puntadora i'm probably mispronouncing his last name and um there are colleagues at uh, i think they the group that they run is i think international it's like International Pain and Spine Association or something like that. Um, but they have a couple books out too on it. Like they have one main, uh, it's like almost like reconciling uh, pain neuroscience education or pain neuroscience and manual therapy, it, which the whole book is just dedicated pretty much on this. Um, and, and what they're saying is like that it seems to be these more, you know, systemic effects that's triggering your body to create these these better gating and, and use of its of its natural mechanism to control pain usually which then it's not the fix our goal would be is like if somebody's at that stage to okay let's do this for maybe a couple of visits and then get you into more activity so then you can now control this better to do the things you want to do and get you on to like my you know big exercise shill over here is to get people to these like activity guidelines because the majority of people that i treat don't even come close to meeting them so like my goal is i'm you know let's get you to where your goals are and then i like gradually nudge people like okay we're gonna start having you do like a walk this many times or like a biking or elliptical whatever they like to do more this many times a week for this many minutes and we're going to work up to this many minutes so typically get them in that range of like 150 to 300 minutes then um i'm you know give them strengthening exercises you know strengthening i prefer to say like resistance or like reconditioning exercises sometimes and like okay here's like a I get them onto like a full body like workout routine and like all right you're going to do this like three times a week and and things mm-hmm. like that um manipulation can be a starting point but it's not the only fix yeah so so as you're saying just kind of more of a uh, maybe initial thing but it's not going to be the answer or the fix whereas Mm -hmm. just as we said trying to give your body those different um, as you said sorry just give those body um, some stimulation to kind of adapt and make itself as robust as possible against these things yeah i think that if you go into a place or like you have a family member that goes into place and they go well 
Like, I just go in and they manipulate me, or, like, I'm on the table and they stretch me the whole time, then you should tell them to probably find somewhere else. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I guess uh, just, like, a good summary on everything here. What, what would you say um, the biggest takeaways for um, athletes, sports medicine, you know, anyone in, in there with, um, you know, scans in general, and then um, kind of as we talked about the findings of them and then what the general approach to um, helping not fix or deal with the issues are. Yeah. I think for scans, it's like you can't take them for face value. Like they have to be interpreted with a clinical exam, which unfortunately is happening less and less. Um, So like you have to, and it's tough because a lot of people don't, a lot of professionals don't respect therapists or rehab professionals that much so it's like you have to meet the patient where they're at discuss like this is what your imaging is but this is what I'm seeing on my clinical exam do these things match up or do they not and then um, as far as uh, management goes like you know you have to meet that patient where they are like where are they at how long have they been dealing with this is this interrupting their sleep is it affecting can they not play with their grandkids? Has it been this way for a long time? Because um, a lot of times some surgical, like some of my patients get surgery and I'm, I'm like end up being kind of fine with it because it's like to them, like the f- current level of function they are at is, is maybe unacceptable and it has been that way for so long that it may be more feasible um, to get them to do everything they need to get where they want to be after they maybe have, have have had a surgery or like a joint replacement things like that okay um yeah great yeah thank you thank you very much thank you very much for being on the episode really appreciated it yeah. um if you just want to i guess shout out uh where people because i know you, you um have some stuff with um strength guys and then uh your yeah. own stuff um and then where people can even if they want to uh, see you in the clinic uh shout out kind of your um, social medias where people can follow you get in touch with you where they can see you if they want and then i'll put those in the show notes yeah, so um, my Instagram, which is always like the best place to find me, is at it's at strength in evidence underscore physio. Um, we have a strength guys page, which is I believe it's just the strength guys um, on Instagram. We also have a website, thestrengthguys.com. Um, my clinic, we have a page, but I mean I don't post a whole lot on there is I have to look just so I don't get it wrong it's PTS Rochester on Instagram um, if people want to otherwise connect with me I suggest on LinkedIn uh, if you send me a Facebook friend request I will not accept it because uh, I post a lot more pictures of like my family and my political beliefs which I try to keep separate from my professional um, on there so um, those are probably the best places to find me. I'm in LinkedIn and um, Jacob H. Templar. Because um, if you put in my first and last name, the only thing that ever comes up on Google is um, there's an Australian American football player named Jacob Templar, or you get stuff about the Knights Templar. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll make sure to put all, those, put all those in the show notes. Thank you very much for being on, and thanks for the information. Yeah, you're welcome.